Section 17 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tom Milliken. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases. By John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh. Mysterious Disappearances, Part 7 A Disappearance in the Black Hills The gold mania, engendered by the reported discoveries of the precious metal in the Black Hills country, freshened the activity of the adventurous classes. Cleveland did not escape the contagion, and six of his citizens, including one James Hearns and his son, made preparations to violate the treaty of the government with the Indian occupants and poach upon their hunting grounds. The party traveled together until they reached Wolf Mountain, north of the Black Hills, where Hearns and his son, by mutual arrangement, parted from their companions to pursue a different course and seek their fortunes alone. The father and son had not proceeded a great distance when, according to the statement of young Hearns, they were attacked by Indians and his father was shot in the forehead and thigh. Of course, young Hearns did all that an affectionate and dutiful son should do under the unfortunate circumstances. He tried his best to save his father's life, but all efforts were in vain. The deadly bullet had completed its work, and nothing was left for the sorrowing youth but to give his paternal ancestor decent burial. After performing the last sad and solemn funeral rites, the young man arrived at Yankton and finding himself without funds, telegraphed to Cleveland for the means with which to return to his widowed mother. The disconsolate youth returned and, after the lapse of a brief period, applied for the insurance which Hearns, Sr., had, with wise forethought, effected upon his life. From certain suspicious circumstances, the insurance companies, prudently, refused to pay one dollar of the sum claimed and the consequence was a lawsuit, which resulted in a verdict for the plaintiff. The counsel for the defense were not at all disconcerted at the turn affairs had taken, but simply asked for a stay of proceedings. Now comes the interesting part of the business. Immediately after the trial, Mr. E.K. Wilcox, in company with Detective Reed, started for Lake County, Ohio, and... In their rambles around Madison, a village about 40 miles from Cleveland, they thought they saw something which looked very much like the departed James Hearns. At first, they were inclined to doubt their senses and determined to wait and watch. About midnight, again they saw the supposed corpse and traced him to the house where he was staying, where, upon an interview, the dead James Hearns, who had been shot in cold blood in the Black Hills, was found to be alive and well. Upon recognition, there were no hearty congratulations, but all that was heard was the laconic, You're my prisoner, and the sharp click of the handcuffs. The prisoner, seeing that all resistance was useless, meekly accepted the situation. When the big game had been bagged in Lake County, a dispatch was sent to Cleveland to forward James Hearns, Jr., which was promptly done, and the affectionate couple were reunited in jail and detained to answer the charge of perjury, attempt at swindling, and subornation of perjury. Evans, the Northwood Murderer 
On the 16th of August, 1870, Franklin B. Evans, a man 60 years of age, then living at the house of his brother-in-law, Elias Evans, in Derry, New Hampshire, called at the Boston agency of the Travelers Insurance Company and, on pretense of going to Canada, obtained a general accident policy for one month in the sum of $1,500 for the benefit of his brother Elias. On the 29th of the same month, the beneficiary, a man between 50 and 60 years of age, notified the company that Franklin B. Evans had been drowned accidentally on the evening of the 24th while bathing at Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. Inquiry into the matter by the adjuster of the company aroused his suspicions, and he proceeded to investigate the case more minutely. He found that Evans had called at the Granite House, Hampton Beach, on the afternoon of the 24th of August, and arranged for rooms and board for himself and two friends who were to come there. On his arrival, Evans had requested the clerk to enter his name upon the hotel register which was done. No room was assigned him, nor was he present at any meal. The same evening, he was in the office of the hotel and had some conversation with the clerk relative to bathing near the house. This was the last scene of him. The next morning, clothes were found spread upon the beach at a time when there appeared to be no one in bathing to whom they might belong. Finally, the garments were examined, and from papers found in the pockets, the clothing was supposed to be that of Franklin B. Evans. In the course of the day, Elias Evans arrived at the beach from his home in Derry and inquired for Franklin. He was informed of the clothing that had been found and at once identified it as having belonged to his brother Franklin. Immediate search for the body was made. The morning was calm and clear, and the translucency of the water permitted a good examination of the sea bottom at considerable depth. But although boats passed carefully over all that portion of the water where it was supposed that the missing body might be, no discovery was made. After a visit to Derry and interviews with several parties living there, the adjuster became satisfied that the whole affair was a fraud and he freely stated his convictions to Elias Evans. He further refused to accept the allegations as satisfactory proofs of loss and demanded the surrender of the policy. Nothing further was heard from Franklin B. Evans for more than two years. About the 1st of November, 1872, he was revealed to the world as a monster of cruelty and villainy. He was arrested and tried for the fiendish outrage and murder at Northwood of Georgiana Lovering, aged 14 years, the grandchild of his sister, Mrs. Day. To his conviction of this awful atrocity, the details of which are as heartrending as anything in the whole range of criminal annals, was added his own confession, not only of the murder of Georgie, but of a little child, the daughter of Mr. Mills, of Derry, in 1850, and of repeated guilt in theft, counterfeiting, defrauding, adultery, and incest. As one portion of these confessions forms a fitting sequel to the particulars we have given, and justifies the Traveler's Insurance Company in resisting what was presumably a fraud, we subjoin a copy. New Hampshire State Prison, Concord, New Hampshire, February 14, 1874 to the Travelers Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. 
Gentlemen, in the month of August, 1870, I was a poor man and thought of a plan whereby I could obtain some money. Together with Elias Evans, I planned to obtain an accident insurance upon my life, the insurance to be for his benefit. Elias is my brother-in-law, he having married my sister and lives in Derry, New Hampshire. Having decided upon our plan of operation for defrauding your company, I went to your office in Boston on the 16th day of August, 1870, and made application for a policy stating to your agent that I contemplated a visit to Canada. A policy insuring my life for $1,500 for one month was written by your Boston agency and was made payable to my brother-in-law, Elias. Having obtained the policy, I went to Hampton Beach and made arrangement for board at the Granite House there. This was on the afternoon of the 24th of August. That evening, I went out of the hotel, saying to the hotel clerk I was going in bathing. I did not go into the water at all. I took off my clothing, leaving it all on the beach, and put on another suit which I had provided for the purpose. I left my clothes lying on the beach at about 10 o'clock that night. The day after I left the beach, while walking in the road near Raymond, Lawyer Bartlett came along and took me into his carriage and carried me a few rods when I got out at a cider mill where was some new cider being made. I went up into northern Vermont. Elias did not know where I was going, for when I left him, I told him it was better he should not know where I was going, so that when he was inquired of about it, he would not have to lie about it. I got tired staying off in Vermont, hiding up. I concluded to return to Derry and did so in about four weeks after I left the beach. I was hid in Elias's barn for a while. While I was in the barn, I learned from Elias that your agent had been there to see Elias and that he did not believe I was drowned and that he would not pay the $1,500 to Elias. Elias and I had arranged that if the money was paid, he was to have $500 and I was to have $1,000. I feel that I have done wrong in this matter and want you to forgive me. Franklin B. Evans Witness, J.C. Pillsbury, Warden On the 17th of February, 1874, the hoary-headed scoundrel expiated his crimes on the gallows at Concord, New Hampshire. A lame man leaves tracks of betrayal. Joseph L. Clement, a shiftless and worthless fellow, lived at Brownfield, Maine. He had a wife and two children and a boon companion named George A. Hartford. In May 1871, Clement obtained a policy of $5,000 upon his life in the Northwestern Mutual Life, and in September of the same year, $5,000 more in the Travelers, and $5,000 in the Economical, $15,000 in all, and the last policy being dated September 27, 1871. Out of these facts grew incidents which brought Clements into notoriety. During the evening of October 3, 1871, Clement and his crony, Hartford, were returning home from Cornish in separate teams. According to Hartford's statement, when about five miles from Cornish, where the road runs along a bluff of the Saco River, Clement started ahead. Soon afterward, Hartford heard a noise, a splash in the water, and loud cries for help. He hastened to the spot and shouted over the bank in the darkness, but received no reply. 
He hurried to Hiram Bridge in the neighborhood, gave the alarm, and procured assistance. The body of the horse and the wagon were found in the river, but Clement could not be found. In 1874, suit was brought by Mrs. Ruth H. Clement against the economical to recover under its policy, but it was resisted on the ground of gross fraud. Defendant's counsel contended that the horse had been backed over the bank and had received a heavy blow between the eyes as he went over. It was also claimed that the cloth and the hat found in the road were placed there by Hartford. It was shown, moreover, that Clement was lame in the left foot occasioning a hitch in his walk and leaving a peculiar track. The track was discovered the next morning, leading from the place of the occurrence, and the same track was found within a fortnight after, between Hartford's house and the neighborhood where Cyrus Durgan, brother-in-law of Clement, resided. Dr. Jesse P. Sweat also saw a man, he thought to be Clement, coming out of the road leading to Hartford's, who suddenly disappeared in the woods. The same man was seen by other parties, but soon after he disappeared entirely. Defendants alleged that he had gone to some other part of the country, where he was living under an assumed name. The jury returned a verdict for the defendant company on the ground of fraud, and that the man had been seen alive since his presumed death. On the 24th of September, 1878, Mrs. Clement brought suit against the travelers, in the United States District Court before Judge Fox. After the case was called, the counsel for the defense produced an affidavit signed by the mother and sister of Clement, which sets forth that he was not drowned at the time of the loss of the team, but had hidden the woods where he remained for some time. While there, his tracks were seen and aroused suspicion owing to a peculiar formation of one of his feet. He managed to communicate with his mother and, as soon as he could escape, went to Blue Earth, Minnesota. His mother removed to the same place, and there they had been together until a year passed when Clement went to the Black Hills and his mother returned to Waterboro, Maine. She remained quiet, but the lawyers got wind of her presence. A justice of the peace sought her out, and finally she and her daughter signed an affidavit to the above facts. The lawyer, by letters, had found out where Clement was. End of section 17.